Okay, let's go ahead and pray and ask God to bless this time as he already has begun to do that. Heavenly Father, we are grateful that you have spoken to us in your word, that you haven't left us without your truth. And even more than that, you've placed your spirit inside of us in our lives to carry out this truth, to enable to, to live out who you are. And so, Father, we come to you this morning and need to, to hear from you, and we ask that you would use this in our lives individually, regardless of our circumstances, that your grace would come and meet us exactly where we are. It would provide exactly what we need today. Thanks, Father, for the privilege we have of gathering and hearing from you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you'd open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 20, uh, we're going to read this parable, the, the uh, parable of the workers in the vineyard, and um, just need to make this note. I realized this week after I'd started preparing for this that I found out after the fact that the Chad had preached on this about three and a half years ago. And he said, oh, by the way, I preached on that. And I said, well, too bad. I'm preaching on it again. So this is not an attempt to one-up Chad. I would never want to do that. Um, but this is just a passage that I wanted to, to hit this morning. And so uh, I happened to have been gone the, the time that he preached on this. So we're going to look at this, this parable again. And I'm going to start in verse 23 of chapter 19 to give us a little context on this passage. Verse 23 of 19, we're going to read through verse 16 of chapter 20. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will the rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for the camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard, and going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, You go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right I will give to you. So they went, going out again about the sixth hour, and about and the ninth hour he did the same, and about the eleventh hour he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, Why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. And he replied to one of them, 
Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first last. I don't know about you, but as we read through that, that passage, it should send any one of us who happens to be living in the America with a kind of work ethic that's been built into us, it kind of causes us just to cringe a little bit in our seats. As we see that a man who worked one hour is paid the exact same for the exact work of someone who had worked 12 hours. And indeed, they're all paid the same regardless of the amount of hours that they work. We should look at that and go, what's going on here? And it should make us just twist just a little bit. In fact, I was telling my wife this last week what I was preaching on in this passage. And she just kind of looked at me and shook her head. And she's, I don't know what to do with that. We all just kind of go, whoa, what do we do with that? But the, the beauty of the passage is that it doesn't, it's not intended to explain how to pay people. It's not, it's not intended to explain labor and wages for us. It's not necessarily going to help us to know whether we pay our children the same amount for doing half of the driveway, removing the snow, or all of it. It's not going to help us know whether we give our kids allowance or not. It's not going to help us know how to play, pay our employees due to the amount of work that they've done. It's not going to help solve the labor dispute between the NFL owners and the Players Association. Yes, we probably will have a play stoppage come this fall. This isn't going to help so much in that, but what it's going to do is help us understand the nature of the kingdom of God as we look at this parable. Because this parable uses labor and it uses wages, but it's not about labor and wages. This parable is going to tell us and instruct to us about what the kingdom of God is like and what the king is like. It's going to demonstrate for us, I'm going to use this language, the currency of the kingdom of heaven. And it's going to contrast for us a couple of types of currency that we think that is a part of the kingdom of heaven. But Jesus wants to correct their thinking as he wants to correct ours of what really matters in the kingdom of God and what's really there. So parables are a story. They are, an, they are a tool that Jesus uses to communicate to his listeners, to communicate to us, to paint a picture for us of what the kingdom of God is like. In this, he uses the phrase, the kingdom of heaven, to start out the parable. It's, it's like this master. And so he says, it's like this. And so there's two tiers to this story that Jesus is telling the tear is the, the one that they're familiar with. And the second one is the spiritual reality that's telling us what the kingdom is like. And even as we think about this, this phrase, the kingdom of God, which is so prevalent in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we need to understand that the kingdom of God is, is his merciful reign. It's his sovereign reign. Then it came and it, it was made known in the person of Jesus Christ. And his kingdom still is present, and yet it's still progressing. There's a sense in which this kingdom will be consummated. It will be finished in some day. And he refers to this day in the regeneration or in the new world, it will be completed. And so the kingdom of God is something that is real. It's now, it reveals his reign, his sovereignty, even now and yet not complete it will be completed at some point in time. So we live in the middle of that, the alreadiness of it, as well as we wait for it to be completed. But it's a picture of his sovereign rule and reign. 
And this particular parable, and many of them, what happens is, if you want to find the meaning, if you want to find what the point of the parable is, you want to find that point at which what happens is most unexpected. Where you want to find the surprise for the hearer and for the reader to read this and find that point where you're surprised at what happens. And you're going to find or locate the meaning of the parable at that point. And indeed, the surprise in this parable, what is most unexpected is that point when all of the laborers come forward and we find that the laborers that had worked only one hour receive the exact same amount of day's wage as everybody else who had worked two and six and nine and twelve hours. And that's the point at which we turn in our seats and we kind of wonder what's going on here. And the hearers in the day would have had the same kind of offense. What is happening here? How can the kingdom be like this? And it's that point we're going to find what the meaning of the parable really is all about. The context as this flows in the, in the book of Matthew it, there's a couple of different ways. One, in the broader context of Matthew, we find that Jesus is on his way from Galilee to Jerusalem. And so this will find him moving towards Jerusalem in this passage. And he's moving towards Jerusalem, of course, to meet his crucifixion, to lay his life down on our behalf. And so we see that there's a preparation going on in this, in this pattern, this place, um, as Jesus attempts to prepare his disciples for his crucifixion and for his resurrection, even though they're not going to quite get it. But there's something else that's going on in the, thematically in the book of Matthew here. One of the things that you'll find is that Matthew is wanting to, to locate the, the focus of Jesus' ministry. He's going to see, we're going to see an expansion of that, of that ministry. Earlier on, we see that his focus on the nation of Israel. And so it's in that place that he would go directly to them. But as his ministry expands, as he goes to the cross, as he dies and he is raised to life, we see that that ministry expands to the nations. And so it leaves the nation of Israel as they reject him and is expanded to the nations of all. So leaving the ethnicity of Israel behind to say now it's for all nations, not just for one nation as it had always been. And so it's important as we look at this particular parable is that Jesus is wanting to prepare them for the nature of the kingdom. The kingdom is not just a Jewish kingdom. The kingdom that he is talking about is a kingdom that will be for all nations in which everyone is included, not just one of a particular ethnicity or one who just has been given the law or one that has a kind of priority. This is for all people. And so we see that Jesus is preparing his disciples. He's preparing those who are hearing for the nature of this kingdom to go to all the nations. And he's wanting to undermine their thinking about it being retained just for themselves. That what he is doing and what he is establishing is just for them. Is just for the nation of Israel. He wants to say, no, there's more that this is for. And so he wants to undermine that, and we'll see that in this parable. In the immediate context of it, you see, and as I read that, that as he tells the story, this, this parable, it's in the setting of this interaction with his followers, especially Peter, after the interaction with the rich young man. And you see that Peter makes a statement in verse 27. And this is what I think he's responding to with the parable. I think it's to this thought, this sentiment, this idea that, par that Peter carries that he tells the parable against. And indeed he speaks against anyone who thinks like this, who carries this idea. And Peter says in verse 27, Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? What is it that we get out of this deal, Jesus? See what we have done? Now Jesus rebukes him 
generally and then more specifically in the parable here, immediately afterwards, he says, yes, you're right. There's a sense in which you will gain something, and that's good. But he ends that chapter with that line, but many who are first will be last, and the last first. Because he, what he wants to do is reorient their thinking around something beyond just themselves. Something beyond just what they would get. He wants to say, the kingdom of God is much greater than just what you can get. It's more than just what you want. And so the context here we have, as he speaks to Peter, he speaks to anyone who would, who would be about accumulating for themselves status in the kingdom that's just for theirs to be kept. One who is interested in being first over and against others who would be last. He speaks this parable against them. He speaks it to us to remind us about the currency of the kingdom of God. The overview of the parable here, we see the parable as he steps, he says, it's like the, the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning. We see that the picture for us is a man who owns a vineyard, he owns this land, and it's time for the grapes to be harvested. I don't know much about the grape harvest, but I do, I learned this in my reading, that there's a very narrow window at which you want to harvest those grapes. That the maturity and the sugar content, all those kinds of things, comes at a, at a very pointed period of time. And so within a day or two, the goal would be to harvest those grapes and to get them to the market. And so the master of the house, as he wants to do that, has to go out and hire more laborers than he has just to service those. So he goes to the, the town center, he goes to the place where people would be there waiting to find jobs, day laborers looking for work. He would go to that place and he would hire laborers to bring them into his vineyard to be able to get the harvest within a day or two, it seems to be the case here. And so you see that he goes at different points in time. There's several different, several different ways that he goes. He goes at the, the first hour at six in the morning, at really at, at the break of, of dawn as, as he goes to hire some laborers. And with those laborers, he has an agreement, right? He says, you work for this day and I'm going to give you a denarius. So he has a contractual agreement with them and they're willing and they go to work. And that's their understanding. That's what they bargained for. They bargained for a denarius, which was common for a day, a day laborer in that case. It's like a minimum wage for us. That's what I'm going to pay you. That's what you're worth. Going to put you to work. But then he goes back out again. He goes at nine. He goes at noon. He goes at three and he goes again at five. And with each one of those, as he goes to hire them to, more, to, to finish out this harvest, as he hires them, he doesn't agree to a specific wage. He simply says, I will pay you what's right. Whatever you're worth, whatever I think is right, I will pay you. And based upon his character and his integrity, they trust him and say, okay, I will, I will go to work for you. And I will trust that you're going to give me whatever is right, whatever is correct, based upon the, the time that I put in. And so they go anticipating some form of payment, but certainly not an entire day's wage. And so they're sent out in, into his labor, into the field to do that. Now, what's important for us, if we're going to understand this parable, I think, is to look at the five o'clock laborers. I don't know about you, but as you, as you consider these people, they have been there all day waiting to be put to work. And he comes back to them and says, why aren't you working? Why are you still idle? And they say, well, no one has hired us. And so he puts them to work. And the question I want to ask is, why are they still there? Why are they still there at five o'clock? There's only an hour left to work. There's only an hour for them to earn any kind of income whatsoever. Why are they still there at five o'clock waiting to be put to work? And I think the answer to that question helps us understand really the heart of the parable. The reason that they are still there is directly connected to their need. 
They have not left yet because they are in desperate need of some sort of provision for their family. They have not left because even an hour's worth of work would give them some income that they could cover the needs of their home. And so we want to directly connect the, the fact that they're still there with their desperate need to have someone who will put them to work, that someone who will provide for them. They're not just there lazily, they're there ready to work, but they have a desperate need and they're looking for someone who will help provide that need. And so we find that that's the case and he hires them and puts them to work. And of course, he calls at the end of the day, he calls the, his, his foreman to bring them through and to pay each one of them as was the custom. And indeed, it was a part of the law of Israel that they would pay them at the end of each day because they needed that money to buy food for the evening, to buy food for the next morning. So they lived literally day to day. So they would receive their wage and then they would literally take that money and go buy the food that they would need for that evening and for the next day. And so he would pay them at that point. And so we see that the instruction though from the landowner to his foreman is this, pay the last first. I want these who have showed up at five o'clock and only worked an hour, I want you to pay them first. And of course we find that as they come through, they're paid an entire day's wage. They're given an entire day's wage for one hour of work. And of course the three o'clock workers, the same thing. And the noon and the nine o'clock workers. Of course as they come through, we see and what's put on display here is the great generosity of the landowner. The one who's looked at their need and said, I'm going to provide for you. And we see that his generosity is put on display. And you can only imagine what that would be like to have come through and be paid for an entire day. To have your entire needs covered by just one hour of work, which was what, only what you could offer. But not everyone appreciated the generosity of the landowner. You can see that those who were hired first, who had kind of a, a contractual agreement with him of a denarius, somehow as they saw their relative worth as these others came through, that each of them was receiving a denarius, they saw that their value increased in their own eyes. That somehow how they saw themselves was better and more valuable to them, to the, to the, work, to the landowner than, uh, than the others. And so their idea is what? I'm going to get paid more. Certainly I've worked longer, I've worked harder, I'm going to receive more from him. And of, of course, what do they receive? They receive a denarius. They received what they had bargained for from the landowner. And so their attitude shifts, it changes, they realize what they, have, what they had received. They see they're not appreciating the generosity of the, the landowner. They begin to question him and say, somehow call into question what he's doing and, and the fairness of what he's doing. And, and he just simply says to them, Hey, I gave you what I agreed to. I'm not doing you any wrong. This is what you bargained for. This is what you get. If I want to do, if I want to give to these others the same as I give to you, what's that to you? And so we see that their response is complaining. There's a grumbling that goes on. They indict the, 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 um, the justice and the fairness of the landowner. And he just simply reminds them that he has done them no wrong. And he pays in that and says, go on. But in this picture, we see a great picture of the generosity of a landowner who pays people not based upon what they're worth or what, based upon what they earn, but based upon what they need. And for us, as we put this in the context of Peter, and we realize that this is a story told to Peter and all those who like him, who would seek first about accumulating a kind of status in the kingdom based upon their own actions, based upon what they can do, Jesus speaks it to them and he speaks it to us. 
The parable demonstrates for us what the thrust of the kingdom of God is. It shows to us what it's oriented around. It shows us what the currency of the kingdom of God is. It's not a currency which accounts for human effort to be able to earn our standing in the kingdom, nor some sort of status, ethnic status that we would have before God as he speaks to them in this Jewish context. No, the, kingdom, the economy of the kingdom of God is driven by something else. It's driven by something completely different. It's driven by a currency that puts all of us on the same playing field, on a level playing field before God. And the currency is nothing more than the very sovereign grace of God. And it's the grace of God that we see that's pictured in this. The generosity of the landowner is a picture of the great generosity of God to those of us who are in great need of what only he can offer to us. And as we look at this picture, as we ask the, the question and wrestle our own hearts with our own desire to, to earn our own standing before him, we recognize that we can't. And as we look at this parable, there's several things that we can pull out of it that will transform our understanding, one of the king, and of the kingdom and what it means to live in the kingdom of God. And the first we recognize that as we see this graciousness of this king. Of this one who would come and provide not based upon what we can earn. But based on what we can need. That the currency of his kingdom is his grace and his mercy and his love. That our response is joy and gratitude at his abundant generosity. Because he has come and met each one of us based upon our dire need. He has provided for us in our circumstances. Can you imagine to be that 5 p.m. laborer who's worked for an hour, to come through the line expecting to get one hour's worth of wages and to be paid an entire day's wages? Can you see the surprise that would be on his face as he has paid that amount of money? Enough money to go buy food and put on the table and to make it through that day, to find and to see the generosity in this man that he would pay him so much more than he have ever could have earned in that one hour. But for, for those of us who look at this scenario and we, we see and we, we compare the, the six o'clock labor and we've been there, we've worked all day and then there's those who show up at five and we go, that's not fair. That's not right that you would pay all of them the same. The five o'clock laborer did not earn what he received. He didn't earn what he got. And we see at that exact point, that point at which we turn in our chairs and our hearts where something's not quite right is the very point at which we find the point of the parable. That's exactly right. He didn't earn it. It was a gift to him. And it could only be a gift because he was unable to earn it himself. And the beauty of this act of the, the generous landowner is that the payment from him was not based upon his, what he could earn. It was based upon the need that he had. And so he gives to him what he needs. It wasn't earnings, it was a gift. And we see in that the picture of the currency of the kingdom of God, that how it operates isn't what we do, it's not what we bring to the table, it's not how we can build our status, it's what he has done, it's what he has provided. And for us as we respond rightly to that, as we see that, the joy and the gratitude that God has provided for us, what we could have never provided for ourselves in Christ. You see, there was a coin that was one-twelfth of a denarius. And it would have been given in a case just like this. You worked an hour, you get one-twelfth of a day's wage. Here it is, I'm going to give it to you. But he doesn't use that. It's not like he couldn't break a bill. He purposely gives him exactly what he needs to cover his need. 
The laborer is in need and he provides for that. And all of us are in the exact same boat only to an infinite degree. We have one hour to work and we have an infinite amount of debt that we have to pay. We need to provision for ourselves and we can't earn it ourselves. Only we, the only thing we can do is rest in the generosity of the landowner who will provide for our needs. You see, when man comes to God, he does not receive a carefully calculated portion of divine grace. God doesn't come to us and give us just a slice of it. He doesn't give us just what we earned or the goodness that we earned it. He, he lavishes his love upon us. He pours it out upon us. He generously gives to us infinitely more than we could ever deserve. In fact, exactly opposite of what we do deserve. One of the reasons I wanted to read the, the passage from Ephesians chapter 1 this morning and the, the, the um, profession of faith is a reminder of the abundance with which God has given to us. And the language in that passage is rich as Paul describes it. But in one passage there in verse 7 he says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us with all wisdom and insight. He didn't just kind of give it out just a little bit. He didn't just kind of pour out just enough in a trickle. But Paul used the language, language of lavished. He poured it out in abundance upon us, that which we needed. Not just a part, not just a little piece, not just a little piece based upon one twelfth of what we could earn. But in his generosity, he gives us the great amount that Christ had purchased for us on the cross. And so we see the generosity of this landowner, the generosity of our God who would pay us would, according to our need. My dad tell, used to tell me a story. I heard it a number of different times growing up. But uh, as a kid, he grew up in that era where every kid worked. And he worked a lot as a kid and very poor and, and just to put um, you know, food on the table. And one particular job he had was a job in which he, he said he got $10, hour, $10 a week. He would work and he would show up and he would work five days and we'd get 10 hours a week or $10 a week. And he said, you know, that was good money for me in that day and age. And, and he worked hard and he was there on time. Well, he used to bike to work and it was on rock roads and you know how that goes. He, one particular morning he had a flat tire and he was about five minutes late to work as a result of his flat tire trying to be there and all that. Well, he said as the week came to its end and he got his paycheck, he looked at the paycheck and the, the owner had docked him one penny. He had written a check for $9.99. And the reason he had done that is because he had been five minutes late that one day to work. Now my dad, if you knew my dad, um, didn't like that even as a kid. And the guy said, well, I guess I'll see you Monday morning. My dad looks at him and he says, no, you won't. And he wanted to tell me, as he told me the story, he just said, you know, I just couldn't work for a guy that was that stingy. I couldn't work for a guy who would dock me a penny because I had a flat tire. And I tell that story by contrast of the exact opposite of the way God treats us. He doesn't dock us for something we've done. He completely provides for us in abundance. He doesn't carve off a penny or a nickel or a little bit of his grace or a little bit of his love because of something we've done or something we didn't do right or some mistake that we made. His grace is full and it's abundant and it's presently available for all of us regardless of our ability to obtain it, regardless of our ability to earn it or to work for it. And we see that this landowner, this one who has called us, as we see a picture of this generosity, should bring great joy and gratitude as we recognize what he has done for us.
But the second thing it does for us, not only joy and gratitude at his generosity, it also does something in the way we relate with one another. The way that we see his generosity as it spills over, as it is in the life of others. Because it eliminates the need for me to ask the question, what's in it for me? It eliminates the need for me to ask the question, what benefit do I get out of this deal? Because that's our tendency, right? That's what we tend to do is say, I will do so much, but what are you going to do for me? Or to look around and find what he's done for others and think somehow I deserve more. You see, as we realize what he has done for us, that the currency of the kingdom is his grace. There's no place to ask those kinds of questions. There's no place to ask who's first or who's last or to try to find a position that would put myself above someone else. There's no place for that kind of language for me to accumulate some sort of advantage above someone else. It's alien to the kingdom of God when the only currency that matters is the grace of God. At the same time, there's no place for comparison of looking around and seeing what God's given to others that he hasn't given to me or how somehow it's been unfair in the way he's been generous to others and not to me. That somehow I see my relative worth in relation to others There's no place for that kind of comparison in the kingdom of God when we realize who we are and what he has done for us. That he has blessed us in the heavenlies with every spiritual blessing. We have everything we need. That all of our needs are covered, especially spiritually. That our standing before him is completely taken care of as well as he said he will meet our needs here in this world. He will cover our needs. He will take care of us and provide for us. And I know for me, as I look at my own heart, I find very very clearly as I look around at others, how easily envy and jealousy can grow in my own life. And I see what others have or how easy it seems to be for others. Or I see gifts that others have or I see financial freedom or well-worthal that other people have that I would want or fill in the blank of those things and I see it as a sign of his, God's generosity to others. But what about to me? And I'll accumulate or pile up my own works, the things I've done or look what I've done before you in some way to try to build my case before him that I should receive as much or more than others to place me at the first or second or third, but at least above and beyond others. And so we see that this easily grows in our hearts, just like those first hour hirees who look and see their relative worth is greater and begin to complain against the landowner. I find myself there. But when we recognize that nothing we have has come from me, that everything is a gift from him, and that everything comes ultimately from, from him that all of us have. That it didn't, didn't originate with us but came from him. We can enjoy and delight in the blessings that he's given to us. And the blessings that he's given to others. So there's no place for comparison. There's no place for it. It eliminates the need to even ask the question, what's in it for me? In fact, the language of first and second and third in the kingdom of God becomes completely obsolete. It's not even necessary as we realize the way that he has poured out his grace upon us. In this economy where the currency is God's grace, that's the only thing that matters, not anything that I can bring to the table. So it eliminates the need to ask what's in it for me. Well, finally, as we look at the passage, there's something else that, that it speaks to us. And at the end of the, the passage, we see a kind of warning, as indeed the entire parable is about. But the, the warning is to those of us, again, who struggle with that. And the two questions that the landowner asks reveals the heart of those who were hired first and somehow expected more. The two questions he asks are really rhetorical because the answer is clear. 
on both accounts. The first one he asks is, am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Can I not do what I want to with what's mine? The clear answer is, of course you can. It's yours. The second question he asks is, do you begrudge my generosity? And the answer to that one, of course, is yes, too. You do begrudge my generosity. You have not appreciated the way that I've been generous to you as well as to these others. And when everything has come from grace, there's no place for us to step into, if you will, the realm of, of who God is and to somehow instruct him on what he should do with what's his. Another way to reorient that first question is for, it's as if God would say to us, who are you to tell me what, what I can do with what's mine? Who are you to instruct me in how I should govern my affairs to do with what I possess? And each one of us, as we recognize ourselves there at that point in time, realizing what he has already provided for us, it's a great time just to shut our mouths and to repent of our sin and say, you know what? <laughs> You've been generous. You do whatever you want to with what's yours. I'll step to the side. You've been generous to me as we realize that the riches of this grace has been poured out upon us, those who deserve punishment, that we realize there's no place or no interest in attempting to govern what God would do, what he would choose to do with what's his. We find this kind of attitude that's within us. And he says, I can do what I want to with, with, with what's mine. And we heartily agree. The second question he, he asks is, do you begrudge my generosity? Are you jealous because I am good? Are you jealous because I am generous? Are you mad because I choose to be good to others? And we find ourselves at that point at times where we are angry when we see the goodness of God poured out on others, when we ourselves wish we had more. We look at those points in time when we want to build our own case. We want to point out like Peter did to God, look what I've done. Don't I deserve more? Do you begrudge my generosity? Are you jealous because I've been generous? And we say, yeah, we're there. When we find ourselves changing the currency of the kingdom such that we can have some kind of leverage on God to instruct him, we want to say, we want to move the currency from his grace to our effort or our faithfulness or our goodness or our work that we've done. And then that way we can bring some leverage on God to get him to do what we want him to do. When we find that we are discontent and jealous at the blessing that he bestows on others, when we're ungrateful with the infinite blessings that he's lavished on us, there's only one thing for us to do in those points in time when we find that in our hearts, when we find ourselves discontent and angry and upset at what he has done. It's the point in time for us to repent of our sin, to shut our mouths and acknowledge that he is God. To ask him to open our eyes, to ask him to help us to see the riches of his grace, to ha ask him to, to show us what he has done for us, to see what he has provided for us in abundance already, and to receive this gracious warning from him and to remember his grace. As we understand what the currency of the kingdom is, the, it's the grace of God, it brings a kind of gratitude and joy and security as we rest in that. As we understand that it's not about anything we can do or we can earn, that our provision is based upon our need, that he has provided abundantly in Christ. We don't need to compare with one another. We don't need to ask the question, what's in it for me? We don't have to try to accumulate for ourselves some standing in the kingdom because we already have it based upon what he has given to us. And we can hear his warnings as we see our own hearts desire to 
put God in our favor, somehow put God in our debt so that he owes us something. So as he works in our lives, we're able to not begrudge his generosity, but bless it and to enjoy it ourselves and to, to be grateful in the way that it pours out in others. Well, as we see this, the, the kingdom, this is the context, this is what it does in us. There's, there's three responses, I think, that, that we can consider as we, as we look at this. As we understand that the currency of the kingdom is God's grace, that his provision is based not upon our effort or what we can accomplish, but based upon his grace and what he has, he has done for us. The first one has to do with, with understanding this currency. And I think for many, if you think that the currency of the kingdom is something that we do, if you've lived most of your life thinking that if I can just work harder, if I can just do more, if I can just be better, then we have misunderstood what the currency is. We have thought it's self-effort. The currency of the kingdom is God's grace. And for each one of us who think that, who are living in that way, we need to exchange, if you will, our currency of self-effort. Exchange our currency of what we bring to the table in and of ourselves to receive the only currency that really matters. To receive the work that Christ has done on our behalf. To give up on our ability to earn our standing in the kingdom or entrance into the kingdom and to receive what he has provided for us, to give up on our efforts to do that and to receive that. It's called conversion. We convert our currency of self-effort into his currency of grace. The second thing, for, for those of us who've walked this road for a while, you realize that we have a tendency to shift back into the old currency system, right? We know that it's by grace that we enter into this kingdom, but we forget sometimes and we want to return to this old system that says, my own effort, my own work, my own abilities, my own faithfulness, my own goodness will allow me to stay in the kingdom. That somehow I'm going to earn my keep in the kingdom based upon my effort. And so there's an ongoing and dangerous tendency for those of us who have received God's grace to slip back into that mentality of earning our keep there. And that does us no good. We find that there's a need to prove or to justify my status, to prove my adequacy. And it's a futile effort that is endless. And indeed, Paul, as he writes to the church at Galatia, that his intention there is exactly what they had done. They had slipped back into a pattern. They had adopted, they had left the gospel of grace and taken on a new message which involved their work, their own self-righteousness based upon what they had done. And Paul wrote to them to correct them. And at one point in chapter 4 there, he says to them, what happened to the joy that you once had? What happened to the joy that you experienced when you knew that it was nothing that you could do to enter, or to keep, or to maintain your status in the kingdom? And that's exactly what happens to each one of us. The joy just evacuates from our lives. When we think now, it's up to us to maintain our status. And we turn away from what God has provided for us. And we work to ourselves. And as Jerry Bridges would say, we need to preach the gospel, the truth, that God has provided for all that we need each day to ourselves. So we see there's a tendency that's there that we need to, as we live and understand of his grace, we can stay away from, we, we move away from that. There's a third response I think it's important to us. Lest we think 
that entering the kingdom means nothing else. It means he pays us for no work. He pays us for nothing at all. We misunderstand the nature of the kingdom. As we enter into it by his grace, as he provides for our needs, we now have the opportunity to work and to serve him in the kingdom, to take the blessings that he's given to us and to pass on to others, to pass those on to others who need to experience that as well. And so we have an opportunity to witness for the king who's brought us in and paid us much more than we deserved. The one who has provided for our infinite need by his infinite payment in his son. And we have the great joy of witnessing to that. And we see a transformation take place in our lives. Now, I want to return back to Peter here as I conclude. If we look at uh, Peter, and there's a transformation we see in Peter's life. And, you know, Peter really is kind of the whipping boy for us in the church. As we look at him, we see all the things that we... You know, he basically says the things that we think but just wouldn't say. And as we go back to verse 27 of chapter 19, we see the, the statement that he makes that, P, that Jesus tells this parable toward when he says, See, we have left everything to follow you. What then will we have? We see there that Peter is asking the self-centered question, right? What do I get out of this deal? But the beauty is we understand and enter into the kingdom as we understand what God has provided for us, that his grace is sufficient for us and we no longer, not only can't we, that no longer do we want to try to earn our standing because of what he's done. As we experience that transformation in our lives that takes place, there's a shift that takes place in the way that we're going to go after that, the same question. If you turn with me to Acts chapter 3, we see a transformed Peter. We see a different Peter who has come in contact with this king, received his grace. And no longer is he asking the question, what's in it for me? No longer is he asking, how can I gain some status in this kingdom? In chapter 3, there's a setting here where they heal by God's power this man, this um, blind man or lame man and verse 2 of chapter 3 and a man lame from birth was being carried whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate to ask alms of those entering the temple seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple he asked to receive alms and Peter directed his gaze at him as did John and said look at us and he fixed his attention on them expecting to receive something from them but Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus. Get up and walk. You see, he, he moves from what's in it for me, what is it that I get, what benefit do I get out of this deal, to whatever I have, whatever I have received, I give to you. And the one who understands the nature of the kingdom is the one who's saying, I'm not trying to keep, I'm not trying to accumulate, I'm not trying to build my status any longer. The language of first and last no longer has a place. It's the one who says, whatever I have, I will give to you. Because that which is most valuable, I have the most of. The spiritual blessings that God has provided for us. And so we see the shift from the question and the shift in our own lives from what can I keep? How can I build my status? How can I look good in front of others? To how can I give? How can I take from what God has given to me and pass it on to others? And as we understand the nature of the kingdom of God, as we see the currency is God's grace, as we see that he has provided not based upon our, on, on our ability to provide, but based upon our need, then we have the opportunity to take this gospel, this message to those around us. Because he is giving to us.
so graciously so can we generously pass it on to others. Let's pray.